Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you again, and I really appreciate the privilege of being able to share God's Word over these three Sundays and, and the, the two evenings as well. So in the mornings, particularly, we're looking at these early chapters of Daniel and just walking through the life that's described for us there um, and seeing, if you remember, the first chapter was the presence of the kingdom in that even though Daniel was captured, he was never conquered. He was in an alien situation, in a situation that was trying to crush him, trying to shape his values, shape his thinking, shape his perspective, and all of those things. And yet, constantly, God was graciously and faithfully revealing himself to, to Daniel, and that even though they changed his diet, changed his clothes, changed his accent, changed his language, even changed, tried to change his name, he was really still very, very much in the service of the King of Kings. Last week, we looked at the nature of a kingdom, and we looked particularly at Nebuchadnezzar and how he's like us if we were given that kind of power and prestige and status and able to do anything we wanted with no inhibition, no redress, nobody challenging that. We think we'd find our humanity just like Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, full of confusion about why is it not working? I've got everything I want, but I'm not happy. Um, why are people not looking, thinking better of me? The, the whole nature of pride and uh, wanting people to, su to submit to us and us to be the top dog and be, the, be noticed and be affirmed and all of those things. And, and the, th the third aspect, if I can remember it, perplexed, proud, oh, powerless, that's right. That's why I use letters, it helps. Um, that even though he had all capacity as the king of the world, basically, arguably the greatest, ma greatest man in, and God made him that, of course, but in terms of enterprise, and yet he was powerless to retain even his own sanity, uh, let alone anything else. And God humbled him. And so we saw, I think, our own nature extended into a big canvas in the, in the person of Nebuchadnezzar. Parallel to that, of course, is the nature of Daniel, which is of a different ilk. He's not perplexed. He's not confused. He knows exactly who he is and why he's been placed there and what God is doing through this particular uh, circumstances. Nor is he full of pride. He's very humble. He thinks less of himself than, than, than anybody. And he's not powerless, but he's given the wisdom, given the knowledge, given the capacity to resolve and, and answer the dilemmas of the world around him in his time. And that's not just to make Daniel uh, somebody we admire, but because in Daniel we see Christ, and Christ was all of those things in, in fullness and perfection, that he, was, he knew exactly who he was, rebuking his mother even, don't you know that I must be about my father's business at the age of 12, setting his face towards Jerusalem, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Absolutely clear as to who he was and where he was going. Not at all proud, but humbly in John 13, washing the disciples' feet just hours before he's to go and give his life in the greatest sacrifice of all for the world. That's, that's power. When you're that meek that you have all strength, but you submit it to a greater purpose. And not powerless, but 
able to be resurrected and walk in newness of life and declare all authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. And now I call you to bring that testimony, bring that message to the world. So that's where we've been in case you weren't here or you were and didn't listen properly. Um, so we're up to chapter five and we're going to look not at the presence of a kingdom and not at the nature of a kingdom, but at the decline of a kingdom. And chapter 5 is a kind of sad chapter in some ways, but it's very blatant as to what humanity is like when we ignore God, when we don't respond to his faithful, gracious, persistent wooing of us to himself. His first work of the Holy Spirit is conviction. That's why there is an offense in the gospel. We don't want to be offensive. We don't want to put people down. We don't Bible bash them, but we care enough to, to tell them the truth. And we're, I'm grateful for those who led me into truth and told me exactly where I stood before God. We didn't spend much time on it, but in passing, at the end of chapter 4, and in fact at the end of either chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar comes to this position of acknowledging the God of Daniel. And arguably at the end of chapter 4, he really does acknowledge God as the one whose his kingdom reigns forever and ever and who he just finishing off chapter 4 now I Nebuchadnezzar this is the final verse 37 praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just those who walk in pride he is able to humble and he's experienced that firsthand and a, a question I, I ask the students when I go through Daniel is so are we going to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? And I say, I'm not going to tell you till Friday. And we start classes on Monday. I'm going to tell you tonight. No, I don't know, but I, I sense yes. I'd like to, I want, I'm looking to look around for him. You know, we're going to have those little, hi, my name is Nebuchadnezzar. He'll have to have a big one, big piece of paper, whereas Job only needs a little one. Um, my name is Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to, I thought you'd be here. Because you bowed your knee to the living God. In your context, God of Daniel, for us, Christ himself, revealed to us. That's my hope. What I am confident about is what God reveals to us in chapter 5 of Daniel. And as I say, I call it the decline of a kingdom. And this is several kings later. It, um, I did do the research and there's at least five different kings who've ruled since Nebuchadnezzar. I, I remember the next one, I think his name is Evil Medarach. That's an that's a appropriate name probably. And there's, I think, Nebuchadnezzar and ultimately Nabonidus, who is reigning at the time that we come to chapter five. But Nabonidus has also his son reigning as a co-regent, which is Belshazzar. And this chapter is all about Belshazzar. And it's the famous chapter, you've probably seen it in your, in your Bible if you haven't pre-read it, the writing on the wall. What a great <laughs> phrase that is. That's a, it's used down the street, it's used in politics, it's used in the media, the writings on the wall. And if ever that was a, an appropriate phrase for our world, I mean, probably every generation has felt it, but we can see it as loud and clearly as anything. The writing is on the wall. And maybe in your conversations with somebody this week. You might want to use that phrase um, and, and then just remind them, oh, do you know where that comes from? Well, it comes from the Bible. It comes from Daniel chapter 5, and you can tell them the story. 
because I believe the gospel is embedded everywhere in scripture, but is particularly clear in this, in this chapter five. The decline of a kingdom. There are three things I think we can draw out from this chapter as we walk our way through it. And the first is signs, because the writing on the wall is, is a sign, of course. The first thing before we even come to that are signs of degeneration, signs of decline, signs of things going wrong, going, um, going amok, going wrong. This is no longer a Nebuchadnezzar who at least had dignity, who at least, in, 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 along with his pride, came to the place of, of humbleness and acknowledging of, of the God of Daniel, even though he was certainly not responsive initially. Now we find Belshazzar who is going to mock the very God of his father, and that means forefather, not an immediate father, Nebuchadnezzar. There are signs of degeneration, and I think we find them here in these first four chapters, excuse me, first four verses of chapter five. So King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and of silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. That's a Big picture. Signs of degeneration. Well, first there's a party, and it's a big party. It's a thousand nobles. Some of the commentators think this was a politically astute way of currying favor, and possibly and Belshazzar was anticipating wresting the throne from his father Nabonidus. That's political and historical background, possibly and certainly wanting to deflect concern in Babylon from the emergence of the Medes and Persians. The Medes and Persians were starting to revolt, starting to rebel against this powerful empire of Babylon. And as we'll see later, um, the historians Herodotus particularly tells us that they were, they were not a military threat so much though they had risen up and were pursuing um, or advancing towards Babylon, arguably from two sides. And we'll explore that a little bit more later on. But the historians tell us, or the, the commentators who are looking at this historically say, this was probably an astute move from Belshazzar to deflect concern and to, to ingratiate himself with these most powerful people, these thousand nobles. And so he, wants, he, wants, he's put, he puts this party together. And he wants the party to go well. Well, I'm going to I take that as a little sign of our current uh, world and the signs of degeneration. I hear it all the time from our students that they, they grew up, some of them, in, in sound, faithful Christian homes and churches, but they get into the party scene. You know, it became an overwhelming temptation. It became such that and there's nothing wrong in itself, of course, in partying, but it's what goes with it, what's associated with it, and the denial of their true identity if they're really, if they're really Christians. 
And, and the party scene is a very big deal with, with young people and, and, and also older people too as a massive distraction from facing reality. It seems like we are just can't face the true, our true circumstances, our true condition. And so we'll, we'll load ourselves up with a whole, whole range of ways of being distracted. There's an, and so I've, I've put in my notes, as a sign of degeneration is an overemphasis on pleasure. It's a massive industry. And of course, it, doesn't, it, it works initially, it works for a time. It, it's, it's what you do with, with children. If you want to correct them or you want to get their attention, you, you give them something to play with or you give them a distraction from one thing that's upset them. It, it's a basic human, con, human activity, human strategy. But after a time, and, and, and the world is not happy, it's not resolved, it hasn't really dealt with anything. All it is is a distraction at best and usually damaging, self-defeating and hurtful at, at worst. And we've got, a, we've got a huge industry around us um, in our culture, especially our Western culture, where we have the, the wherewithal to be able to do this. The problem is that when it doesn't work, when it's even relatively normal and relatively healthy, there's no way to go except to make it unhealthy and make it perverted. And this is what I find in the, in the students that, that come and we, sh we share our lives together and they tell their stories. That what started out as maybe just a distraction becomes something that ultimately enslaves them and hurts them massively. Um, I don't know if I should quote this or not, but I saw this, uh, well, I've said I have to now, I've told you this much. Um, it, I saw this in a newspaper adv advertising a movie that if rape, murder, and sodomy are what you're into, come and see the best. Now, this is adult entertainment. You know, this is what we think is we're mature. We can cope with this. And I've had students who sometimes challenge some of our moral standards and say, you know, that's your generation. You can't cope with it. I can. <laughs> I'm saying that's the problem. You shouldn't be able to cope. If you think you can cope with that kind of gross immorality, then there's already something massively wrong. Do it nicely, but cut to the chase. And it's just a little tiny sample of our grasping at straws and our, our needing to have the kick, needing to have the extra. And, and you, I, won't, I won't unpackage it anymore other than to say you don't have to look very far to see how self-defeating, how demeaning, and how, how, un, how it makes things a lot worse, obviously. So signs of degeneration, an overemphasis on pleasure. Second thing is a despising of religion or what religion stands for. And if you noticed when we read it, they, Belshazzar's got this feast going. And it's pretty good. You know, I can, I can picture the scene. I've always had an ambition to be a Hollywood movie director. And I've already cast my characters. Belshazzar is a character, is an actor called Donald Pleasance. Now, I don't know if you know him, but wouldn't he be perfect? Yeah, little piggy face and piggy eyes and whatever. But great actor, great actor. And I can see him, and it's okay, but, you know, the, the bass drum's going, the bass, bass uh, guitar's going, the drums are going. It's kind of okay. There's a bit of heaving and amassing. It's all right. But 
got to make, I want people to talk about this. I want them to remember this, and we need to make it more edgy. And so he has the bright idea, I don't think so, of, well, let's bring religion into it. Let's mock God. And so he instructs them to bring the vessels that his father, that's Nebuchadnezzar, his forefather, had taken from the temple. Now, we won't go back to it, but in, his, in Ezra chapter 1, there's over 5,000 vessels of silver, gold, and things that they stole from the, when they smashed the temple, when Nebuchadnezzar took the temple. So this isn't just a little thing. This is a big deal. And he de- deliberately um, incites this, this mocking, this caricature, this cynicism, this uh, exposing of how powerless God is. This God that, um, that, that claims to be so good. Look, we, we, can, we can celebrate our own gods using his, the vehicles and the vessels that do his. I think it's, it's not... Uh, without purpose that people swear using God's name. They swear using Jesus' name. I don't hear them swearing about Buddha or Confucius, you know, where they hit their thumb, they don't go, oh, Buddha, or oh, Confucius. It's always Jesus, and quite sometimes quite nastily. And I think it's a backhanded compliment. It's, it's a subtle affirmation that if I'm going to express my anger and my rage, I want to use somebody that I can offend or somebody that, that should be offended. I, when, I was playing, when I was at school, I played rugby, and um, the most serious rugby is when you play in-house. You, know, you play other schools, you, you try and beat them, but it doesn't really matter. Well, it does, but it doesn't that much. But if you play in-house, you've really got to win. It's like serious, and un- unfortunately, I got a little carried away, and I was in the middle of a scrum, and this guy was in the way and he was doing what he shouldn't have done, so I ended up punching him. And he was a fairly new guy in the school, and he was five times as big as I was. I was pretty small, and I got smashed up. His name was Tony, Tony Housen. But we became mate, good mates after that, as you do if you're, if you're a fella. So we became really good mates, and he left school, and he wrote, we used to write each other letters. And in one of his letters... He, he always used to send jokes, and I'd send... This is before emails and before Skype and all that kind of stuff. So you actually had to write you know, on pieces of paper, and it's a pretty amazing system. You should try it. Oh, no, you're not students. Sorry. Um, anyway, we used to send each other jokes, and he sent me a joke um, that was a pretty nasty one about Jesus. So I just sent back and just mentioned that I didn't particularly appreciate that one because if you remembered... Jesus was a precious person to me, was somebody that meant something, and I asked him just to respect that. And it wasn't a big slam, and then I told, sent jokes in the rest of the letter to him. Well, I didn't know anything about it, but 18 years later, he contacts me and says, um, just wanted, you came to mind, and I just thought I'd tell you. No, sorry, that's not the whole story. I'll just go back a little bit. So I'd sent him that. Then he, uh, we'd been, I'd been overseas, and I came back. And he wanted to contact me. He contacted me and said, I want to catch up with you. And he did. And I took him to our Christian youth group. And it was one of those nights when you kind of wish you hadn't, you know. Everything was lame. Everything was nerdy. There was a Christian film and it was like, oh, so soppy. And I almost apologized. Well, I kind of did apologize. I said, sorry, it's usually better than this. And he didn't, he didn't say much. And I didn't see him then for 18 years. But he contacted me. And he said, um, 
you know you took me to that film and oh, that youth group and that film was so terrible. <laughs> he said, but there was one thing that struck me and I went home and I opened my Bible, I found one, and I read it and I was in tears that night going, if this is true, I need to find out. So then I went to university, he said, and there I met some Christians and they led me to the Lord. And, and it is a nice happy ending story because he then became a pastor and et cetera, et cetera. And he, he said, you came to mind because it was when you pointed out that Jesus meant something to you that made me want to follow that through. And four years ago, I went to visit, when we were back in, in the UK for a conference and I took Cal and Alex with me, we went to see him. And he's now, he started some churches in Holland, he's English, and he's got some churches in Wales and he's just going gangbusters. It was pretty exciting, um, and I like to tell that story because it makes me look good. And, um, but basically, the, just the name of Jesus is, is very, very precious and very powerful. And when people around us use it, it you've got to be a little wise, and don't, you don't jump on them every time. I mean, most people use it just because they've grown up with it. They don't think about it. But maybe there's an opportunity along the way just to affirm that that is a meaningful name. And it's interesting you'd swear by that name or you use that name when you don't believe in him. An overemphasis on pleasure, a despising of religion, what religion stands for. And the third sign of degeneration is a creation of other gods. You see, there is this vacuum, isn't there? There is this innate aspect to our human nature. We've been designed to be in the image and likeness of God. We're designed to be in a perfect, complete, meaningful, full relationship with him and when we've, we've robbed of that it's it's the greatest loss we could ever have we can lose we can lose very important things physically we might lose some of our a limb or we might lose an organ it's horrible it's it's a very tragic situation but this is the greatest loss of all to lose that spiritual relationship with our created living god who's designed himself to be a critical vital part of our humanity as, as my dad used to say, the presence of God is imperative to our humanity. It's not just we need God to clean up our sins and to make us nicer people. We need him to be human. I said to the students the other day, the, the greatest human is God because he understands our humanity in a way that no psychologist, no sociologist, no politician, no philosopher can come close to. He understands our nature, and he designed for us to be in such a relationship with him that we're complete and we're free and we're going places instead of going round and round in circles. And so, it, but into that vacuum, we will we will substitute a thousand other things. And some some of them are very obvious. They're just the materialistic. They're the the pleasure ones. Um, in, in, and there's a list here of Belshazzar praising the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And there's a, quite a, a, a deliberate deterioration in value, isn't there, in, those, in that list of substitutes. And how, how insulting to the living God to praise gold, which he's, <laughs> if we understand Revelation, it's going to be with streets of gold. And yet we're praising a tiny aspect of what he's going to provide in its fuller, fuller sense, not, not necessarily meaning literally, but with the value of what we value. Right down to stone, 
Now, ironically, of course, we've seen in, in Daniel chapter 2 that there is a stone not made with human hands that is going to come down and smash apart all the kingdoms that have, think they're so important, think they're so glorious, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, and smash them apart. Remember that in Daniel 2? And it's a stone. And they're worshipping a, a, a stone, not worshipping the rock of ages made without human hands. And we will substitute all sorts of things, some less harmful and, and some more harmful. But we'll always worship, worship something. And philosophically, we could explore that. We won't. So, so there are signs of degeneration when, when we look at this, this experience of Belshazzar. But God is never defeated. He's never wringing his hands on the sidelines. Um, I put in my notes the 2 Timothy 2.9. God's word is not chained. Now, you can deny God. You can bluster that it's, it's all foolish. It's all naivety. It's all traditional stuff, and we're better than that. We've moved out of that. God isn't smaller than that just because we don't believe in him. I used to, when I was here in the 80s and was teaching at Barrel High School in uh, Scripture, and I had a year 12 class, and they were pretty, pretty hardcore, and we, one day we were talking about stuff, and they said, but sir, we don't believe in this. Do we have to take this class? And I said, well, whether you believe in it or not really isn't the most important thing is whether it's true or not. When you decide whether it's true or not, then you decide whether you believe or not. But your, your perspective is, we don't believe in it, so it, it goes away. It ain't going away. <laughs> and that's the mentality of this world. I don't believe in God, so it doesn't exist. Or I don't have to deal with him. Yes, you do. In fullness and honesty. So the, there, are, there are signs of regeneration even in the midst of these signs of degeneration. And that's the beautiful thing, and that's the encouragement we have of being in church, being with those. And we represent a tiny proportion of thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands and millions around the world who are bowing the knee to the living God, who are not being overwhelmed by the circumstances. There are three, I think, that we can pick out from these next few verses and of course, the first, the, f the first sign of regeneration is the message of truth, the message of truth. And picking it up in verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. This is where I'd like to be the movie director. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. But the message of truth, God is a, a revealing God. He's, he's not, the, the prophets of old said he, the heavens are as brass, but that wasn't because of God, that was because of their hardness. God, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Day unto day unto speech, night unto night declares knowledge. There's no language where their voice is not heard. God is rampantly speaking to every, every human heart. But not everybody is listening. Or they're looking in the wrong places, as the king did when he saw this writing on the wall. And when I visualize this, I, the, the, the music's pumping and, tha and the, the, the orgy, whatever's happening. And then the king is, it seems to be the first to see it because it's, it's obviously in his eye line. And when he's, his, his face changes and, and suddenly he looks terrified and then his knees knock together and he collapses, 
people go, I can just see this music stopping and there's absolute silence. And then horror as they also see this hand on its own writing on the wall. Apparently that wall would normally be full of uh, exploits of kings. And writing over that, if it is that, is many, many tekel uparsin, this writing. And the message of truth is always there. It's never far away. It's not far away at all. In fact, Acts 17, Paul says, the God that you don't, you've got this, you know that exists, but you call him the unknown God is only one step away. And that step is repentance and faith. The message of truth. The message of truth is supported by the spirit of truth. And the word of God is the word of God. And that's why we're, we're so grateful to have it. That's why we're happy to share it and encourage people to take it and take it into as many languages as possible and give it to people in various forms. But it's the spirit of truth that makes the message of truth come to life. And the spirit of truth, of course, is, is in the person of Daniel. When the, the, the local the, or the human wise people, Belshazzar's um, enchanters and wise men, astrologers and diviners, try to interpret it, they, they can't make sense of it. And you can't, if you, in your own strength in this world. The, we understand it's, it's a naivety. We understand the world doesn't get it. They just don't get it. Because they're not seeking it with the spirit of truth. They're just seeking it out of an academic exercise or a philosophical exercise. Or usually seeking it to demean it or to dismiss it or to despise it or to, or to reject it. But then, and it's quite fascinating, that the queen appears. And this is, we understand historically, this is probably the king's mother, possibly grandmother. And she still has a memory of Nebuchadnezzar and how God had revealed through Daniel his dreams and the experience that he'd had, which Belshazzar had known about, but is, as Daniel says, you have, you have ignored it, but the mother hasn't. And I'm not going to say she's in heaven, but I'm going to look for her as well. <laughs> but she's, when she comes in hearing all this turmoil, hearing all this angst, and the party's, not, the party's fallen flat, she walks in and says, what's going on here? And basically, the, the message, it's all explained. And she says, well, there is a man, this is verse 11, in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. We said the other week, not quite theologically correct, but close. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. And, so, and then she explains the story. And so Belshazzar calls for Daniel. He's obviously in obscurity. He's obviously not known because Daniel, Belshazzar doesn't even know who he is. But he's called. And there is a, not just the message of truth, but there is the spirit of truth. And Daniel is like the Holy Spirit in that he's been... He's been silenced, he's been marginalized, he's been cast aside from the place of prominence that Nebuchadnezzar had placed him in. And we can do that even as Christians with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes as the Holy Spirit is seeking to encourage us, direct us, remind us, call us, lead us, we choose, we get distracted, we choose other things and we sideline or we can marginalize. The Bible uses, Paul uses the, the words like quench the Holy Spirit or grieve the Holy Spirit. I think of Herod and John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, a, was the Holy Spirit's voice of conviction about his marriage, his false marriage. And rather than deal with it, he's put in prison. We, we can do that. 
And those who don't know the Lord, God will be speaking to you by his Holy Spirit. But Sometimes we're, we're more fearful of man than we are of God. We're more concerned about our reputation with them and what we might look like. And so we, we buried the Holy Spirit as John the Baptist was put in prison and silenced and removed from, from, from attention, from consciousness. But the spirit of truth will out, as Shakespeare would say. And here as Daniel is now brought out and he is able to reveal what I call the moment of truth. The word of truth has always been there. The spirit of truth is always seeking to bring us to that place of right standing with him. And then, in this case, there comes the moment of truth. The moment of truth is that it's in verse 23. This is the inscription that was written, many, many tekel parsin. And this is what these words mean. And Daniel's able to explain, and you'd be familiar with them probably. Mene means numbered. Tekel means weighed. And peres means divided. The moment of truth has come. And the signs of degeneration are now demolished by the sign of regeneration. Regeneration meaning the hope of new life, the possibility of new life, the offer of new life. It's based on you understanding that your days are numbered. So again, we have that on the street level, but that's a biblical term. Our days are numbered. We sometimes use the phrase, your number's up. It's a biblical term. We, our days are short. It's a point in us a man wants to die and then the judgment. It's a message we don't share around. We don't, we're slightly embarrassed by that in our church world a little bit for the, for the world thinks we're always against them. But we can do it graciously. We can do it winsomely, but we need to do it faithfully and honestly. Our days are numbered. Our lives are weighed. So many think... Yeah, you just kind of get by and we'll all kind of be in this mass flock of sheep that will kind of be accepted into heaven if there is a heaven, you know? And the folklore of rock band, I always think this is ironic, rock stars that die, they're always told they're, gonna, they're joining the great rock band in the sky. I don't think so. God's the source of music. There ain't no music in hell. You have a weighed life. Your life is actually being evaluated every second of every day. And it's not weighed against some, some, some average, some meaningless middle of the road. It's weighed against the person of Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of glory. And glory is the expression of Christ. He came to this earth in his humanity full of glory. We beheld his glory. We sat with him. We talked with him. That's, the, uh, that's who, we're, who we're weighed against. And there's no one who, who, in their right mind, would claim to be of worthiness, of equal worthiness with, with the Lord Jesus. And the third word is peris, which means divided or separated. Separated. And in Belshazzar's case, of course, that's applied as your kingdom has been separated from you. You've been divided from your status. That's the, that's the gospel message, that our days are short, that our life is being evaluated by a holy, perfect God, a just God. 
that our kingdom, which is a temporary kingdom, that we're in charge, we're in control of our lives, we, we run our world, but it's going to be taken from us. And that's why in Luke 14, when Jesus says, when you decide to make war against another king and you see that he's got a greater army than yours, what do you do? You send out an ambassador and make peace. And that's a picture, a parable of the kingdom. We're, we're faced with a, a God who is more powerful exponentially than we, we can even measure. And we have an opportunity to send out an ambassador and make peace and be right with him, lest we lose our kingdom. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. That's personalized. Thy kingdom come, as well as in the, in the eschaton, in the event, in the end times. And for his kingdom to come, when we pray that prayer, my kingdom has to go. We don't just add Jesus. We don't just add a safety value, an insurance, a safety valve, an insurance policy. We come sending out an ambassador of peace to the King of kings and Lord of lords, at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who he is. That's the moment of truth. And for Nebuchadnezzar, it was the end. It was a sign of condemnation. He'd had this witness of, his, of Nebuchadnezzar, his forefather, very, very blatantly, clearly, and ignored it and rejected it till maybe he had forgotten it. Didn't change the, the outcome. The outcome is, and let's, we're just about to finish, but this, la, this verse 30, that very night... Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Sad, but right. But he had clung on, tried to manipulate, tried to extend, tried to curry his own kingdom futilely because ultimately we all face the king of kings and the lord of lords. Now, he had, he had reason for being arrogant. He had reason for being falsely secure, Belshazzar. He was in Babylon. Babylon was this amazingly powerful, glorious city. Just checking out the statistics. It, it was, even though the Medes and Persians were re rebelling and were, were advancing, they were not a threat. This city had two, uh, two sets of walls they were over 300 feet high. They were 87 feet wide. And around those walls were 250 fortresses. This was an impregnable city. And Belshazzar sat in that city going, who's going to take my kingdom from me? Nobody can conquer us. The historians is quite fascinating. And there are allusions in Jeremiah and Isaiah to it as well. The, Historians tell us that the, the Medo-Persians, in advancing, realized they can't take this city. But what they did, and the river Tigris, which flows through, flowed through Babylon, upstream they diverted it into a, a lowland area which had a small lake in it, and it became and the and the river, the water in the river, was diverted away from its natural course. And with the two sets of armies either side of the city, they were camped where the river was. 
And as the, as the water fell, they walked down the, the riverbed into the city. And Herodotus, the historian, says, even as the nobles were leaving the palace, actually it's the, the women folk, the, the Medes and Persians arrived. That's how quickly this happened. They were ready there, they didn't, and they had this plan. And on this night of all nights, it all came together. Babylon was history. Not a, very, not a long history like the Assyrians and others. Very glorious, but very quickly, an immediate finish. And they walked in. I guess my challenge to myself and to you and to anybody else who's listening is that who, who's in charge of your kingdom? Is it a kingdom that you still think you're in control, that you still think you can manipulate and you can carry others to work for your agenda? That's a Belshazzar approach. If that's how you're coping with life and that's how you think you're going to make it, then the news is loud and clear. The truth is loud and clear. But you've been numbered. Your days have been numbered and you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting. No question. And it may not be a dramatic end like this, but your end is coming. My end is coming. You don't have confidence. If you don't, haven't done business with God, if you haven't acknowledged this is a king who is, who is king of all kings and send out an ambassador of peace, come in an attitude of repentance and submission and invite him to come as King of kings and Lord of lords into your kingdom on the basis of repentance and faith and acknowledgement of sin, then you're in grave, grave danger of the writing on the wall coming true for you. If, as we said last week, we, we, we do know we've given our hearts and lives to the Lord, but we're so easily distracted, we find other agendas to kind of dis- take our attention. We'll be living unworthily. We'll be living an, a lie to the world. And much as we see the world doing such terrible things, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And there's much for us to deal with and in our personal lives and as a community. So Daniel 5 is maybe a good place to, f- to finish and understand this is serious. This is not just a kind of Sunday morning talk. This is, has eternal consequences. And so I, I exhort you to respond to God in this, that you've heard the message of truth. If the Holy Spirit is the witness of truth to that message, then this is the moment of truth for you to respond. I'm going to close in prayer. As I pray, feel free to Echo these words as your own and give your heart and life to the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pause to acknowledge, hopefully for the many times we've done before, but if never before, we do acknowledge there is a King of kings, there is a Lord of lords. There is a a rock not made with hands that smashes all other kingdoms, be they a political one, be they my personal life, be they whatever it is, Lord. Forgive us for distractions. Forgive us for despising 
the truth. Forgive us for substituting the real truth for small idols. Thank you, Lord, that you graciously have given us the message of truth, even this morning. Thank you that you have, your Holy Spirit is the one who brings that spirit of truth to, to bring conviction. If, if we're in a position of conviction, Lord, we want to respond before it's too late and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. You are the Lord and Savior. You are the one who deserves to reign in my life. Thank you, you are going to reign forever. Thank you that I, I'm invited to be part of your kingdom, and I choose that on the basis of re repentance of my sin and faith in you as my Lord and Savior in my life. And Lord, I believe I'm expressing words that others are praying, and I thank you that you hear our prayer. I thank that you are a faithful God. I thank you that you are not willing that any should perish. You desire all to come to a faith relationship with yourself. Thank you that we can stand on these promises, the promise of your great forgiveness and your sufficiency to remove the sin condemnation from us and to put us into an eternal relationship with yourself. And it's that that we receive, that, that we grasp, that, that we take on board and affirm this morning and in doing so give you all thanks and all praise and all glory and honour for your own precious name. Amen. Amen.